that you would uh, reveal that to us uh, more deeply uh, than perhaps we've ever known it. So I pray you would cause this word of yours to come to great life uh, and deeply show us how much you love us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Acts in chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. I want to read beginning with verse 26 through the end of the chapter. Acts in chapter 8, please. Hear the word of God. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his, this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asking, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And they were going along the road and came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, as, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now it's amazing to me all the different subplots as we've been reading uh, through the book of Acts, even in this particular passage. There are a number of things to which we can, we can, we can, we can think about and consider. Um, in fact, I gave a lengthy introduction in the first service, but I'm not going to do that because I thought that sermon went too long, so you can be happy about that. Although I had put my watch in my coat pocket and uh, my suit pocket, when I took it off, because I was warm, I pulled it out and my daughter said to me, you use that? Um, and so, now you see, this is, uh, you know, a mutual thing. Anyway... I want to get right, really, to the point that I want to make. We'll come back to this passage again. But this morning, I want to take up verse 36. It's the verse where the Ethiopian says, and as they were going down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? I want to take up this idea of baptism. I don't usually do this. I don't usually talk about baptism, but it's still summer. And, uh, and since we did baptize uh, Addie and... Zoe today, it gives an opportunity to think about this because we've been, we've been seeing this expression about baptism uh, throughout the book of Acts. Obviously in Acts in chapter 2, is, as Peter is, making, uh, is giving a sermon uh, and, and people ask him what they must do in response to his sermon, he says, repent and be baptized. And they were, there were 3,000 who were baptized on that particular day. We don't read anything about baptism in the book of Acts until actually we come to Samaria, which was last Sunday in the beginning parts of chapter 8. So from chapter 2 to chapter 8, there really isn't anything about baptism, but we read that thousands literally were coming to faith, so we trust they were all baptized. I mean, that was the, the, the word that they had received from Peter. In fact, it was the word that they had received from Jesus. You remember before Jesus ascended, he, he met with his disciples and he said that all authority had, on heaven and earth had been given to him. And so he says, therefore, go, go to all the nations of the world, essentially. He says, I want you to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I've commanded you. And so, again, it wasn't unusual at all for Peter when he was asked 
Uh, what, must, must, what must we do to say repent and be baptized? That is to turn away and, and come into this identification with Jesus, this, this cleansing. Um, it isn't surprising that we would make the assumption that those who believed from chapter 2 in the book of Acts to chapter 8 in the book of Acts, who came to faith and were baptized, it should surprise us when we get to chapter 8, that when Peter preached in Samaria, that in response to his preaching, that people were baptized, it shouldn't, respond, it shouldn't surprise us here that this Ethiopian um, is baptized as well. In fact, as we move our way through the book of Acts, we get to chapter 9, we'll find Saul of Tarsus gets baptized. We'll find in chapter 10 that the household of Cornelius, a Gentile, uh, and his whole household is baptized. We get to chapter 16, we'll read about this woman named Lydia, who is baptized along with her household. Uh, later in that same chapter, we'll read about a, a, a jailer in Philippi who was amazed at what happened when Paul and Silas were miraculously set free from prison, and, and the gospel was shared with him, and he was baptized, he and his household, it seems, on the spot right there. In chapter 18, we meet a man named Crispus, who, uh, along with his household and others from Corinth, were, were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You get to chapter 19 in the book of Acts, we'll find Paul meets a group of men from Ephesus, who was baptized by John the Baptist, but hadn't really gotten the whole message, so, so Peter shares, I'm sorry, Paul shares the whole message with them, and baptizes them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's pretty much it for baptism, for the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, when we come to the epistles in the New Testament, we find really very little about baptism. We find very few baptisms discussed or recorded. A couple. Um, uh, it's a bit surprising. I, I always hope every time I pick up First and Second Timothy and Titus, which are letters of Paul written to pastors on how to do ministry, I, I, I really keep looking for the baptism passage. It would help me a great deal if there was one about that, but it didn't seem to be an issue. They seemed to know how to do it and how much water to use and upon whom to do it. Uh, and so it didn't seem to be raising a huge question uh, with them. And so there isn't a whole lot uh, in the epistles, particularly about people being baptized, very little bit about baptism uh, per se. But still, as we're reading through the book of Acts, it doesn't surprise us at all that this very interesting man, this Ethiopian eunuch, interesting, kids, I'll let you, your parents explain the eunuch part of this when you get home today, but the Ethiopian part, uh, what makes this interesting, is that he was an Ethiopian who was worshipping in Jerusalem. He, he was coming home from worshipping in Jerusalem. And so it means, and as we read through the Old Testament, especially we find that during the exile, there were Jews that went all the way to Ethiopia, and so perhaps he was from that heritage and still was taught Judaism and thus made, as he was able to afford, trips back to Jerusalem to worship at various times for feasts and otherwise. But here he was, he had gone to Jerusalem, he was worshiping, and, and you can only imagine what he might have heard there at this time about Jesus, about this movement in Jerusalem of all these people coming to faith in Jesus, about the persecution uh, and so forth and so on. And so he's reading, amazingly, from Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, and this scene is a little bit different than some of the other ones of evangelism that we've seen in the book of Acts, because this is an individual kind of encounter. It's not a group kind of encounter. It's an in individual kind of encounter. And we see very directly the Holy Spirit involved. Now, we must be cautious not to think that this is the way it always happens, that we're walking down the street and the Spirit of God whispers in our ear, go over to that car, have them roll down the window and tell them about Jesus. Okay, That's not normally the way it happens. So, so don't think, well, this is it. God will lead me that directly. And if he doesn't lead me that directly, therefore I shouldn't tell anybody about Jesus. No, this is Luke recording a particular incident. He doesn't tell us how normative it is for us at all. Which is, that's, just the, that's just the background information. All right? point is that God is involved in, 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 in the work of this, this great plots of the book of Acts and the whole Bible of getting the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And this is just a piece in the midst of that. But what I want to take up today is this whole idea of baptism. And that is, what did this Ethiopian and what did Philip think of this baptism? What did it really mean for them? And I want to take that, of course, then and say that it means that for us. Because we do have this command of Jesus that we're to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do have this authentic word from Peter 
that we are to repent and be baptized. And so the question is, what does baptism mean in all of this context? Now, for this Ethiopian slash Jerusalem worshiper, worshiper in Jerusalem, uh, who's reading Isaiah 53, who comes to Philip, uh, he gives Philip an opportunity, no doubt, to play connect the dots. Because Isaiah 53, what we read in our affirmation of faith this morning, is that great piece about Jesus, that great piece about this very one who, who is the Lamb of God, who was slaughtered for us, whose sins were placed upon us, who died for our sins, that we might trust in him and believe. I mean, that's as clear a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament as we could possibly ever want to have. There it is. So when people say, I don't see Jesus in the Old Testament, go with them to Isaiah chapter 53. Read it through, and you see him, and you see his crucifixion and all of that quite clearly. But of course, that was, even in these days, sort of the tip of the iceberg, because underneath all of that, what this person who had been worshiping in Jerusalem would have heard prior to that, if he was a reader of the whole scripture, whole Old Testament scripture, was that God had made a promise way back when. God had made a promise all the way back in Genesis in chapter 3. And he said, you remember, after Adam and Eve sinned, he made this promise to them that he would send one who was born of the seed of the woman who would come, and though his heel would be crushed or bruised, he would crush the head of the serpent. That is, he would come and vindicate all of God's creation as well, all of God's glory, all of God's work, by crushing the head of this one who had tempted Adam and Eve away from obedience, allegiance, loyalty, love to God. And so that promise was made. And so even early on, as we're reading through the scripture, uh, our, our attention be, should be heightened a bit, thinking, who is this one? How is he going to come? Well, it doesn't take God very long to, 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 to wet our whistle even more in Genesis in chapter 12, because we come upon this man, rather amazingly so, named Abraham, that seems to just sort of appear, that God just calls him, chooses him uh, for this very purpose. So chapter 12 in Genesis verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you get the sense, all right, one's going to come through the seed of this man, Abraham, because he's going to be the one who's going to bless all the families of the earth. So you get this sense that Abraham's important, his descendants are important, this promise of God is of utmost importance, not only to him, but to all the families of the earth. And then we move to chapter 15, and, and, and God reiterates this promise to Abraham, because Abraham begins to think, if I'm supposed to have all of these descendants, why do I have no children? And he says, all I have is this, this servant named Eliezer, and he'll inherit all my stuff, but, but that doesn't really seem to be, God, what you've promised me. And so God goes on to reiterate his, his promise to Abraham. Uh, and he says, verse 7, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 4, he says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, that is to Abraham, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so right then, you see, we, we get a glimpse of how is it that we're going to be able to have a relationship with God, to be righteous in his sight? What can we do? And the answer is nothing. We come by faith. As Abraham came, he came by faith. He trusted God. And, he, and, and God says, I will count you as righteous." Not because of what you've done, because he hadn't done anything, except question God, hadn't done anything, <laughs> believed him, and God said, ah, you're righteous, declared him to be. And then verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up from the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And then Abram asked the question, how shall I know that it's mine to possess? And so God takes him through this ritual, a covenant ritual, and he says to Abram this, he said, bring me a heifer three years old and a, fe a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. 
And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over the other, over against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. They're too small. Uh, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. So you get this picture of all these, these animals. He cut them in half. He's laid them out. And again, if you lived in this time, you would know exactly what's happening. There's a, there's a covenant being made. Promises are being made by one to the other. And stipulations are, are being received. That is, what am I to do in response to those promises? And all that's transpiring here. It's, 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 it's a solemn contract, if you will. It's an unbreakable agreement that's now being entered into. But notice verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain. And so then God goes and he says, this is what's going to happen to your people. They're going to be taken from here. They're going to be in bondage for 400 years. Then I'm going to deliver them out. And then you're going to receive this land. That's my promise to you. And then notice how all that is is, is brought to pass. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down, remember Abraham's still asleep, and it was dark, behold a smoking fiery pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring, I will give this land. And then he tells them how far that land will go. But that is the very promise of God. Now in this ritual, notice, Abraham slept in a flaming torch fire pot came down and went between the pieces. Now, who do you think that flaming torch was? Who do you think that fire was? If you don't know, just ask Moses later on, because Moses saw that same fire, except it was in a bush. When God manifests his presence in this context, it's a fire. And so we see as Abraham asleep, and God saying, I've made these promises to you, now I'm going to walk between these pieces. Now the significance of that is this. That when a covenant like that was made and an animal like that was slain, the parties to that covenant would walk amongst those pieces. And they would declare their faithfulness to each other. But in walking between those pieces, what they were symbolizing is this, that if either one of us breaks this agreement, then that one who breaks this agreement will die. But notice, only God went through the pieces. And there was a sense in which he was saying, if I break it, or if you break it, I will die. So he takes it upon himself to uphold, to be faithful to this covenant. And then in chapter 17, God gives to Abraham a sign of this covenant. And, and a covenant sign in these days is covenant signs in our own days. It's a sign from God. It's sort of God's signature. He's saying, this is, this is how I'm going to, to point to what I'm promising. And this is what I'm going to give to you so that every time you think of this, every time you see this, then you'll think of my promise. And you'll know that it's real. You'll know that it's true. It's like God signing the document. It's, God, it's like God putting his seal on it. In fact, we say, as I said, as I baptized, that, 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 that these signs are signs of God's covenant of grace. They're signs and seals. They point to God and they show us God's seal. And again, not seal in the sense that you're trying to keep something in, but seal in the sense that it's authentic. If I got a letter from the governor and it was signed by the governor, but it was on a plain white sheet of paper, I would think it was a joke. Because who am I to get a letter from the governor? But if it had the governor's seal on it, that seal that only the governor can affix to that letter, then I would say, oh, this must be real. What's in this letter must really be true from the governor. And that's what God does with these signs. He, they're also seals. And they say, this is authentic. This is true. You can trust this. This is my promise. So he gives to Abraham, name changes to Abraham in chapter 17, this sign, verse 9 of Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep uh, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money 
shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenants. Again, kids, add this to your lunchtime discussion uh, with your parents. But we understand, <laughs> it's going to be such an enjoyable day, uh, my children are grown. My wife is sitting there nervous, thinking I may tell you how I explained this to my children, but I won't. Because I too want lunch. But, um, but we do have an understanding about this covenant sign. It's going to point something true of Abraham and his descendants. And it's going to say to Abraham and his descendants, there is this promise affixed for you. And it comes by faith because it's a recognition of, of how I relate to people. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in, uh, about circumcision in Romans in chapter 4 and verse 11. He writes, He, and the he there is Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal, that is, something to authenticate the promise of God, something to say that this is my seal, this is really from God, you can really trust this. Uh, so he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He's saying that when Abraham received this sign, he saw it as God saying, you're righteous in my sight. Because circumcision would symbolically refer to being cleansed. As we read through the Old Testament, we find that an uncircumcised person was considered to be unclean. A circumcised person, at least in one sense, was considered to be clean. And so there is a sense of cleansing that's signified here. But of course, the very act of circumcision itself does not effectuate, does not bring that cleansing. It's simply a sign of the promise of cleansing, a sign of a promise of righteousness. It doesn't bring it, because as we're reading through the Old Testament, what do we read about circumcision? Well, as we hit Deuteronomy in chapter 10, there's a command that says, be circumcised of the heart. So we know that this is an outward sign that is supposed to reflect something inward. And if it doesn't reflect that which is inward, then it isn't a blessing at that point. At least not in its face. In fact, by the time we get to Deuteronomy chapter 30, God says, I will circumcise your hearts. I will bring this cleansing into your life and to make it real, because just the act of circumcision didn't bring cleansing to these eight-day-old boys or Abraham or any of the ones who came into Israel and were circumcised even as adults. It was to symbolize something, point to something, say there really is cleansing, and this is really true, and this cleansing is from God, and it comes by faith. You must believe, and then you'll be cleansed. Then you'll be considered righteous. Then you'll be received by God as one of his very own in that special God is my father sense. So, of course, as Philip is probably playing connect the dots with um, this Ethiopian, uh, he brings him, he's already there in Isaiah chapter 53, and he says, this is, this is Jesus. This is the one who has come. And, of course, if the question were asked, if he hadn't yet been circumcised, I don't know. I don't know what his relationship with Judaism was. It doesn't say. He might say, well, then, should I not receive the covenant sign of circumcision? Philip, then, should say no. And the reason he could say no, how much of this he knew at that time, or whether even this was a conversation that I'm putting into their heads, um, would be because it isn't necessary, because though he hasn't been physically circumcised, circumcised circumcision has been fulfilled in him. We find that in Colossians in chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, turn to that. I want you to see this. So you'll have a Colossians in chapter 2, verse 11. Again, always in the New Testament, there was great debate, great discussion as to whether or not new converts who hadn't been Jewish in their upbringing weren't circumcised, uh, would they need to be? The answer was consistently no. And here's the reason, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul writes, in him, that is, in Jesus, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the word of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, the apostle saying, what circumcision pointed to now is pointed to by your baptism. And what circumcision pointed to, what your baptism points to, is the work of Christ. And it's been done. So trust in him. And so you see, he would be taken, this Ethiopian, from the old covenant sign of circumcision to the new covenant sign of baptism. And to say, in essence, they refer to the same thing. One looking ahead to Jesus to come and bring cleansing. The other looking back at Jesus that he has brought cleansing. And this by way of the cross. The blood shedding now is not by way of circumcision. The blood shedding now is by way of the cross. By way of Jesus. One looking to the other. And thus be baptized. It's, it's now the thing that points you to the faith of Abraham. It's now the thing that points you to coming to faith in Christ and thus being cleansed. The Apostle Paul, as he talks about his own baptism in Acts chapter 22, uh, speaks of this. He talks about the day that, that uh, this man, Ananias, came to him. And, uh, and Ananias says to him, verse 16, Acts 22, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon his name. That is, baptism signifies and points to this washing away of sins. And so, so if you believe, why wait? Repent, be baptized, take upon yourself this covenant sign. In fact, in the call to worship that I read this morning out of Titus, in chapter 3, we read of, of, of cleansing that is ours because of the work of Christ. Paul puts it like this there. He says... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, this covenant sign says that we are now so identified with Jesus that what was true of him and his work is true of us. One of the great meanings of baptism is this sense of being identified with. Um, I know I'm blitzing you this morning, but you can get the tape and unpack it. In First uh, Corinthians in chapter 10, we hear of a baptism that's rather surprising. Paul writes this, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, that's interesting in a number of accounts. One, it's being baptized into Moses. Number two, there isn't any water. In fact, in order to get baptized into Moses, they had to miss all the water because the scene is going through the Red Sea after it had been parted. So there's no water in this baptism at all. Uh, but it's being baptized into Moses. Well, what does that mean? It means, now I'm going to follow Moses. It means, now I'm going to identify with Moses. I'm going to go everywhere Moses leads. I'm going to, going to be identified with him. People are going to say, oh yes, you follow Moses. And so baptism means to be so identified with Jesus that we follow after him. That we leave the old behind and we follow after him. The way Paul puts that specifically is in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely or certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now Paul here isn't at all saying that baptism makes this happen. Never does an outward sign produce by itself an inward condition. You can read through all of scripture and you'll never find anything that automatic. Outward signs simply reflect what is to be going on on the inside as a teaching tool, as a sign, as something to say this is really true. It's a picture. And so Paul is using baptism in its deepest sense. He's saying this is what it means to be baptized. It means that you are so identified with Jesus that when he died, you died. It is to be so identified with Jesus that when he rose, you rose. So that you need now to live with this consideration. That consideration being that the old self is gone and now you're new. So get on with it. So consider yourself dead to the old and now live as one united to Christ. Live as one who's identified with him. Live as one who follows after him. That's what that means. In fact, in Galatians, Paul puts it like this in Galatians in chapter 3. In verse 27, he writes, For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now again, it doesn't mean that the moment you're baptized that you've put on Christ, that it just happens automatically. He means that this is what that means. This is why God has baptism. So that when you're baptized, so that when you see it happen, you'll say, I'm to identify with Christ. Here's the promise of God. That if I'm identified with him, that when he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. Thus, I'm forgiven my sins. Thus, I'm cleansed of my sins. Thus, I belong to God. Thus, I'm now to put him on and to live after him. And so when this Ethiopian is baptized, that's what he's thinking. He's thinking, yes, I belong to Christ. All that he did is true of me. And now I'm to live that out. And I look away from myself by faith to God. See, that's what these signs do. One of the great dangers of any sign that God gives to us is that we will turn it inward upon ourselves. By that I mean this. If you think about baptism as the commitment that you make, and therefore you always look back and you say, baptism is that day I made that commitment to God, then what do you think about when that commitment begins to wane? What do you think about when your faith begins to falter? Well, if you look back to your baptism get any help, you go, I need to do that again. I need to make this commitment to God. The problem with that is that's the very problem you're having. And if you say you've never had that problem, let me please ask you to go to a different church because you're going to make it really bad for the rest of us because <laughs> we all have these times when circumstances hit, when life becomes difficult, and at least for some moments, our faith isn't as strong as we'd like it to be. Where do we go to get that faith fortified? We think back upon our baptism. Not to think, oh, it's a commitment day, but to think that's the day of promise. To turn our gaze not upon ourselves, but to turn our gaze to God. And say, that's the man. He made that promise. This Jesus he says, there's cleansing in me. And I'm sitting here in my sin. And I'm struggling with assurance. And so I look to baptism and I say, oh yes. That's what that means. There is forgiveness in him. That's the promise he made. It doesn't depend upon me. It does depend upon him. And he is utterly faithful. Yes. You see, It isn't something we do. It's something he promises. And that's what's signified in all of that. Now, hope you're not hungry. Um, a couple of things. Two questions that come to mind I'll have to deal with quickly. 
but I have to deal with them because they're on your mind. Um, I wish they weren't, but they're on your mind. Two questions that divide Christians, sadly, about baptism. I'm utterly amazed. I'm not really. It saddens me, both from my perspective and those who don't agree with me. Uh, it saddens me that baptism is one of those things that's so seemingly difficult in the scripture and so emotional that Christians divide over it. Um, it's just one of those things. We divide over two things. Number one, how much water did Philip use when he baptized this Ethiopian eunuch? Right? And number two, well, you wouldn't ask the question, <clears throat> what about the Ethiopian eunuch's children? But you might... Uh, You might uh, ask the question, why is it that Presbyterians, and uh, frankly throughout church history, uh, we've baptized the children of believers? Um, if in fact baptism means what we've just walked through it saying that it means. So I want to deal with those very, very quickly. I've, you can get tapes in the archives about this if you'd like. Number one, concerning the amount of water being used. I would offer this, we simply don't know. Now, we want to say that baptism, the word baptize, means immersion, always, but it simply doesn't. Uh, I ask you to do a word study through the whole Bible, I don't have time to take you through it. But what you'll find if you study the Old Testament that was translated into Greek, when you find words for washings and cleansings, you'll often find the word baptism, and oftentimes they're sprinklings. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, what you find is cleansing rites are almost always sprinkling not the least of which is in Ezekiel chapter 36, which describes what God is going to do for us. He, was, he says, Ezekiel, through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. Now, it really doesn't matter to me. If God would have said, I will immerse you in clean water, that would have been fine too. I'm just saying it doesn't say that. It says that he sprinkled clean water upon us. In fact, when Jesus speaks about the baptism in the Holy Spirit, he doesn't speak about an immersion in the Holy Spirit. He speaks about the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us. So that's a very different image, even using the word baptism uh, and baptize. And so, so and, and here it says that Philip and the Ethiopian went down into the water and came up out of the water. But that still doesn't tell us how much water he used once he got into the water because if we say that expression, they went into the water, means that Philip immersed him. It also means that they were, they were both immersed because they both went into the water and they both came out of the water. And so who's getting wet here and how much? We simply don't know the answers to those questions. So I don't really care what you believe about how much water is used, okay? We just use a little. Um, if you want more used, I'll bring a super soaker. And uh, we can take over that. I, I, don't, I don't think that's, that's the issue here. Now, there are some who believe that unless you're baptized by them with their water, you're not really saved. That's a whole different discussion, all right? Uh, so, the water, I just don't even want to go there. The second one, though, seems to be more important. And that is, why do we baptize the children of believers? And what does it mean? Uh, well, frankly, it means the same thing. We baptize Addie and Zoe this morning, as it would have been if I had baptized an adult on the profession of faith, which I did just a couple of weeks ago. Except that one is looking, one is receiving the promise, looking forward we are to the day of faith, and the other is receiving the promise, looking back to the day of faith. Both mean the same thing in the sense that both are proclaiming a promise of God. Both are saying God has made a promise to cleanse and that cleansing comes only through faith in Jesus and there's simply no other way. Both say that. Both say that in believing Jesus, then what you're doing is you're saying, I'm so identified with him that when he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. So that by believing in him, sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. And in rising with him, I'm to walk in newness of life and to put him on. In neither situation, the believer or the baby, does that baptism bring that cleansing. But it's an outward sign and seal of that which is to be true within. We pray it be true in the one who's made profession of faith. It isn't always. 
You know that because some of you are baptized on profession of faith before you came to faith and you've told me about that. We have the example of Simon in Acts chapter 8 who was baptized, not a believer. So it doesn't effectuate the cleansing. The thief on the cross is very happy about that because he didn't have time to schedule a baptism uh, prior to paradise. So he was pretty happy about the fact that you know, some say that it rained that day and that was the baptism. But... <laughs> Presbyterian might buy the sprinkling of that a Baptist only if it effectuated a flood. So I don't, <laughs> neither one of us is too thrilled with that particular explanation. We just assume that the thief on the cross got there dry. Either way. But, but did in fact meet Jesus uh, in paradise. The reason that we offer, we give the sign of this covenant to our children is just like for the same reason I explain every single time we do it. We baptize anywhere from 30 to 50 babies a year. So you hear this a lot. And, uh, and the reason is because God has not said that we shouldn't. And so as we begin with the Old Testament and how God shows the sign of the covenant, first off, the sign of the righteousness that comes by faith, he tells Abraham to give the sign of this covenant to his eight-day-old boys, who at that point in their life could not express faith. In fact, we know that many of those youngsters grew up and didn't come to faith, as we read through the history of Israel. And yet they received the sign of the covenant. And so it's not nonsensical for God to give us a covenant sign of something that's to be true within, if it is to be really genuine and real in us, and saving in us, and yet give it to those who don't have it yet. In fact, even give it to those who may never have it, just because they're related to one who does. And so, whether or not we should continue to do it or not, we can't make the argument that it doesn't make sense to God. It does make sense to God, period. It was his idea in the Old Testament. And so he could change his mind. It's our assumption that if he did change his mind, he'd tell us about it. And nowhere in the New Testament does this come up. Nowhere in the New Testament did they ever say, what about our kids? In fact, any indication about our kids gives the impression that we should still give this covenant sign to our kids. Peter, on the day of Pentecost when he's preaching, he said, this promise is for you and your children, those who are near and those who are far off. But he says to you and to your children, this promise of cleansing, forgiveness, and of the Holy Spirit. And we read of household baptisms. And while we don't know exactly who was in those households, it would be unlikely if, for there to be no children of pre-believing age in those, house, in those households when the baptisms took place. And then, of course, children in the New Testament community were considered just as blessed as children in the Old Testament community and the children of the Old Testament community were considered to be part of the community. And so when Paul writes letters, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 6, he addresses the children directly. He doesn't say, hey, parents, tell your kids that they should obey you. But he's assuming that the children are going to be there listening to this letter being read because he's assuming that the children have a place in that covenant community. And therefore, he says directly, children, obey your parents in the Lord. In fact, Paul makes an amazing statement, the context of which isn't our context today because it's the context of marriage and divorce and all that. But he's speaking to an unbelieving husband married to a believing wife, telling the believing wife to stay in the relationship if the husband is content with that. And he puts it like this. He says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. As it is, they're holy. And that isn't to say we have to baptize them, but it is saying that in the eyes of God, children of believers are set apart. That doesn't mean holy, that they're saved. It means set apart, that they're different, that somehow God hears us when we pray about our children because they're our children. And somehow God sees our children in some sense, the sense in which I'll leave it to him to define, differently than other children. And so as we read all that and we put all that together, we give the sign of the covenant to our children. So the question, and I'll end with this, what does it mean? And how should we respond to it? 
Well, if you're a person who is a believer and you were baptized as a believer, hey, you got that? You're a believer, you were baptized as a believer, not baptized as an infant, you were baptized on profession of faith. What does that mean? Well, it means you're to follow Christ. In fact, the old dead guys had this little expression when they talked about what such a person should do with their baptism. And they put it like this. It's going to sound a little strange. Don't think me a heretic. Just listen. They said you should improve your baptism. Now, they didn't mean it wasn't done so well, so you need to go out and get it done better. But to improve your baptism meant to bring it to maturity. To do with it what it was always meant to have done with it, which is to follow after Christ and allow it to inform your life and grant you great assurance that God has saved you because of Jesus, not because of anything you've done. My dad, bless his heart, lives by a very simple rule that he taught us all of our life, and uh, I'm sure I will use this uh, line at his funeral someday. He's uh, 87 and in better shape than me, so he may be doing mine. But uh, if I ever have opportunity to do his, I'll mention this. He always taught us, he said, wherever you go, whatever you do, improve it. If it's grass, cut it. If it's a bed, make it. If it's a floor, sweep it. If it's a job, do it. So that when you leave at the end of the day, you'll know that you were there and you did with it exactly what it was meant to be. And that's called improving it. Everything is made to, 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 to be made better, to grow, to mature. And when these old dead guys said improve your baptism, what they meant was live out your baptism and what it means. If it means that you died with Christ, live like that in every aspect of your life. Don't let a moment go by where you're living in the guilt of sin. But understand that Christ has died and that sin has been paid for. And then he says, walk in newness of life. That's what baptism means. And so don't let a moment go by where you're living according to the old ways, but now live according to the new ways. Live according to Christ. That's how you improve your baptism. You put on Christ increasingly. Your capacity grows to walk in Him. That's what it means to improve Him. So if you were baptized as a believer, look back to your baptism. Regardless of how much water they used, regardless of what church it was in, regardless of who did it, and look to God and live that out. And then if you were baptized as a child and you have yet to come to faith, the word to you is believe. Trust in the one about whom or towards whom this sign points. Because there's only cleansing in him. And if you've yet to believe, then think upon your baptism and think upon the fact that a group of people, a covenant community of people, brought you before God. And it wasn't so much that they were going like this with you to God to dedicate you. It was like God was looking down towards you and saying, here, I want to make a promise to you. Here, I'm going to take the very waters of heaven and I want to sprinkle upon you and I want you to know from this very moment, from this very early on, and I want you to think back upon this, that you belong amongst my people. But the way that you become deeply one of my people is to believe in me so that you can receive cleansing and that I will declare you righteous. And so here is my promise to you that if you believe in Jesus, then understand that he will have done everything. And there is nothing left for you to do, so trust in him. But then just like circumcision, baptism comes not only this, with this word of blessing, but also with this word of judgment. Because you see, if a circumcised Jewish man did not the word for him was to believe but if you don't you'll be cut off and the word to those baptized as children is believe but if you don't believe you'll be drowned because water is not only a sign of cleansing it's also a sign of judgment ask Noah's friends ask Pharaoh's army Now, if you were baptized as an infant and you believe, improve your baptism. Live it out. Begin to think, God is so incredibly faithful. Here I was, this little booger person. (laughs) Right? Here I was. Have you ever listened to the radio, J. Vernon McGee, who's been dead for years, but they keep propping him up. Uh, But it's a great expression. 
uh, about children. He said he calls them. So this is just a stinkweed born in sin, you know, and that's 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 it. And yet, in a beautiful picture of the salvation of God, you're brought before Him, not on your own doing, but by the legs and arms of somebody else. Just as Jason and Jenny brought the two little ones today, please come. There's a sense in which it's nothing that I do. It's all in what he does and all that he has done. And there is this promise made. And now you thank God that how did all this come to be? Well, because all of this is true. I remember as a little kid, every time a baby was baptized in our church, I would think they did that to me. And I would think this must be the place I belong. Because I've received the very promise of God here. I must believe. This is mine to believe. And so, if that's true for you, if you were baptized as a child, and you believe, rejoice in that and improve your baptism. Because this we know to be true, that this salvation is not affected by any outward sign, but it's pointed to by the outward sign. And it's pointed to by the outward sign so that we might believe, so that we can have assurance, so we can look back at it, and we can say, yes, this is true. It is from God and to walk in it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your wonderful grace to us. I pray uh, that you would enable us to believe and to improve our baptism that we might walk with you this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. One thing I didn't say, and I'm not going to start preaching again, but one thing that I didn't say. Obviously, this is one of those issues that can tear people apart in terms of how much water is used and whether you baptize babies and all that sort of thing. I hope you know that at Grace EPC, we have a firm conviction that we ought to give the sign of the covenant to our children. But I hope you also know that we understand that we could both make lists of believers on both sides that we admire and receive from in all kinds of ways. And none of us yet has come up with a trump card so that everybody agrees. And until everybody does, I hope we can worship together. The response to the benediction this morning is that which makes baptism real. And it's, I trust in Jesus. Amen. Please receive this as God's benediction out to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I trust in Jesus. Amen.